Hello, all you stupendous snailfish, and welcome to another episode of A Little Greener, your favorite podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I'm one of your hosts, Kristen, and I'm joined by the lovely Sarah. Sarah, how are you today? Hello, I'm doing all right. We were just talking beforehand, Kristen. I'm feeling needlessly tired this weekend, but uh, excited to be here as always, even just the... 30 seconds that we've been recording, I can feel the adrenaline coming in. I can feel myself perking up. So I'm happy to be chatting with you again this week. How are you doing? I'm doing well, a little sleepy as well, but I'm excited to dive back into coral. It was so, so interesting. And I'm excited to learn more. Yes, we're doing Coral Part 2 this week. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, pause it, go back, listen to that one first. We do sort of a little more background and intro on Coral that will be helpful with some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. But then make sure you come back and listen to this one because we got a lot of good stuff to chat about. But Kristen, before we talk about Coral, I need some clarification on our intro I don't think I've ever heard of a snailfish in my life. So what is what is a snailfish? Yes. So um, I tried really hard to work on some of our challenges, our, our homework over the past couple episodes because I've been slacking. And so I was reading through some news articles and um, an article from Scientific American popped up and I will make sure that is linked in the show notes with the rest of the sources but the title was that the uh, there's a new record now for world's deepest dwelling fish. They found a new species of fish. It's a type of snailfish where there's multiple different types and they live way down deep. And this one was recorded about five miles down. Holy cow. Oh, that's terrifying. Which blows my mind. And we'll link this article, but it's got some crazy pictures they're wild looking creatures. I just Googled it. Oh my gosh. I like, are these real? It's like, I would say this article describes them as tadpole shaped, but they're kind of translucent. So we had talked previously, like the farther down in the ocean you go, maybe the less kind of colorful things appear because there's not, you know, light there's getting no down light, there. Yeah. yeah. And so this wild looking creature lives five miles down in the ocean and it now has the record for deepest dwelling fish so i just wanted to share that because it's kind of relevant to what we've been talking about but it it just kind of blew my mind <laughs> ocean life is crazy i'm so glad you brought that up folks i'm so sorry we keep doing this this is an auto uh, audio medium and we <laughs> We keep talking about how cool things look, but I don't I don't know how to describe it other than what you've already said, Kristen. So folks, when you can do so safely, you'll just have to Google it and uh, learn some some things about uh, a new kind of fish. Because, yeah, I, I was unfamiliar with snailfish and I'm going to have to learn some more myself. So thanks for sharing. Any mm -hmm. other challenge updates from you? Yeah, so I did um, look a little bit more into hydropower. So one of the challenges there was to kind of look up, you know, what facilities are near you. And the closest one to me is about 80 miles away. So not super close, but not terribly far yeah. either. There's a couple different facilities in Indiana that I didn't know about. 
And the website I got that information was hydro.org. And they have a map and you can click on the map and go by state. And it was really easy. So I was really excited about that. And I've also um, just been in general sharing about our episodes and um, trying to recruit some listeners. I did convince one of my coworkers to start listening. Hi, Dave. He listened to part one, so hopefully he's listening to part two. Hello, welcome. <laughs> Dang, look at you go, Kristen. That's awesome. I'm feeling confident, but um, that's all I got. That's that's all. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing. <laughs> that's a lot. I love it. I have obviously been learning more about coral over the course of the past week, or at least the past couple of days. Procrastinated a little bit there, but I kind of randomly. This isn't exactly a challenge, but I am proud of myself because I ate vegetarian all week last week. That is awesome. Have any meat at all. And I just it was very random. It's not actually that hard for me either, I have to say, because at least during the work week I eat pretty much the same thing for breakfast and lunch every day, which never has meat. So it's really just dinner. But chicken and fish or sometimes sausage are all like staples of my dinner usually. And so I went all week and I had none of those things. And I ate probably not the best I've ever eaten, but like reasonably healthy. Like I was still working on getting my protein in. I had some quinoa. I had some eggs a couple of times. Nice. Uh, Things I was like having peanut butter in my snacks. And of course, my soy milk has protein in it and, and things like that. So and it really just started because we went out to lunch I went out to lunch with some of my coworkers on Monday to a place where I would normally get beef. And I just thought, you know what? I'm going to get tofu instead. They have these different kinds of bowls. And so you can pick your protein. And I was like, I'm just, I'm going to do the tofu today. And then I was like, I wonder how long I can keep this up. And so I just decided to to do it all week. And it was kind of fun. So that is awesome. I'm so proud. Great work. I'll have to try to see I just I don't think I could ever completely give up meat I just like it too much it's just yeah anyway I don't it's not something that I'm feeling like I need to do right now but I do feel pretty strongly about significantly cutting back so this was kind of a a fun fun experiment well great work you created your own challenge and you (laughs) smashed it All right. Well, let's get back to the topic at hand this week. And your intro kind of played really nicely into this, Kristen, because the snailfish is on my list now. But I'm curious, we talked last week about the uh, number of species that can be found in coral reefs. We'll be talking about that again tonight. Lots of different kinds of fish make their homes in coral reefs. Do you have a favorite kind of fish? Uh, in general, I don't, but I do uh, really, really like sharks. I don't necessarily have um, a favorite type, a uh, mm-hmm. favorite species, but I really enjoy, you know, Shark Week is my week. I yeah. love hearing about sharks. I try to teach my daughter about sharks. She's in a weird phase right now where she's afraid of sharks, but she used to really like them because baby shark helped a lot with that. Oh, boy. So we're we're now back onto the, you know sharks are pretty cool and this is you know how they benefit the ecosystem and that kind of thing so i always uh, love learning about sharks and, and teaching others too 
Love that. And there are certainly a number of different shark species that are found on coral reefs as well. Some really interesting, cool species of shark, um, some smaller species that people might be less familiar with too. So I also don't really have a good answer. I've been learning a lot about different fish species recently at work and gosh, my dad had some aquariums when I was younger too that had some really cool fish that I loved watching. But I do, I just, I feel like it has to be a reef fish of some sort. Maybe. Little Mermaid doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, but like uh, when we did our Little Mermaid episode, we talked about how new movie live action flounder is probably a, a sergeant major type fish. That's a reef fish for you. But like like the surgeon fish are pretty cool. Like the dory fish yes, is falls absolutely. into that category, the blue tang. I don't know. They're just they're really pretty. Surgeon fish are kind of cool too, because they have those little scalpel things by their tail, which is why they're called surgeon fish. And that's just a little I don't know why I like that so much. It's just because they're these little bright, like pretty species and then they have yeah. these blades on their tails. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I, but there's just there's there's so many and those reef fish do tend to be these small, brightly colored, fun to look at fish. So coral reefs are cool places, really important places for lots of different types of fish. And tonight we are gonna talk more about the challenges that these coral reef environments are facing and some of the ways that we are working on protecting them. So stick around for that. Right. Welcome to part two on coral. Again, they would suggest listening to last week's episode It's called The Secret Lives of Coral. Check that one out first before you come to this one because we're not going to be covering the basics so much here. We really are going to be focusing more on the conservation aspects of coral. The one thing, though, that I do want to recap, Kristen, that we kind of talked about right at the end last week is the benefits of coral. So we're going to be spending all of this time talking about the state of coral and how we're protecting coral. So I wanted to kick that off, just sort of hit home why we care so much and and emphasize once again all of those benefits of coral. So can you, Kristen, give us a quick rundown, share your thoughts on why coral is so important and why we talk about it so much in the conservation world? I sure can try. So lots of different benefits. And yeah, towards the end of last episode, we hit on a couple of them. Coral is is a kind of a staple for a lot of ocean life. And uh, about a quarter of all ocean life depend on coral for food or shelter. So lots of biodiversity there. We've got a wide variety of animals, uh, you know, working together. We also briefly talked a little bit about how corals can kind of buffer shorelines against energy from waves. So waves can obviously be very destructive and coral reefs can kind of buffer some of that impact. There was also, uh, I think we did note last time that the coral reefs all around the world do provide some food and the National Marine Fisheries Service estimates that the value of U.S. fisheries for coral reefs is over $100 million. So quite a bit of value there as well. 
And then there are some medicines and, you know, like antivirals and things that are um, composed of things found along reefs. So um, some medicinal properties there. And then, um, you know, last but certainly not least, there's quite a bit of recreation that happens along reefs. Like I personally am scuba certified and haven't seen a ton of coral, but last time I did dive uh, in Jamaica and I did see a little bit of coral there. So, you know, scuba diving, snorkeling, boating, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff that does provide some income and also some jobs. So it's estimated about $36 billion a year globally there. So lots of economic impact there as well. So it's hard to kind of put a price on any of this, but there's benefits from from multiple different aspects. Yeah. So benefits for us, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think about the Keys down here in, in Florida. Florida is the only coral reef in the continental United States. So the tourism that the Keys get from the dive shops, the restaurants, the hotels, all of that uh, generates a lot of, of income and livelihoods for people as well as our fisheries. We think about the the protection aspect a lot and how coral reefs are these big buffers, reducing the wave energy, preventing not only like loss of property from from flooding and wave damage, but also like erosion and protection from that. And then the biodiversity, we kind of talked about how coral reefs are like thriving cities or like the rainforest of the ocean. They're sometimes called because of all of that biodiversity. So benefits for people, benefits for other wildlife, coral reefs are really very important to have around. So with all of that in mind, how are those coral reefs doing? As you can imagine with us having two episodes on them and really this feels like it could have been like four or five episodes, honestly, with as much as there is to talk about with coral. Coral's not doing great. I will say numbers, at least for me, and I am not a numbers person, but trying to learn and research numbers felt really hard for me with coral. Some of the numbers that I would see in various articles We've talked about before how you can kind of put statistics out there and spin things any way that you want. And so there were some things when people would give a number or a percentage of how much coral we have or how much coral has been lost or whatever the case may be, it felt a little ambiguous to me as to what that number actually meant. But the one that I decided to go with here is from a big report that was done a few years ago called the status of coral reefs of the world, which is what I was looking for. Uh, And this was a a big study done by the Global Coral Reef Monitoring Network, uh, which is a network of the International Coral Reef Initiative. Lots of big names, lots of acronyms there. Uh, But they put out this report a few years ago that showed that between 2009 and 2018, there was a progressive loss of about 14% of coral from the world's coral reefs. So within that nine-year period-ish, we lost 14% of living coral. So that is not a great trend. <laughs> uh, No, right? It, it is not. And I should preface this too. We talked last week about different types of coral and how not all coral is hard coral or reef building coral, but that is primarily what we're going to be talking about tonight is this hard reef, reef building coral uh, and these coral reef ecosystems as a whole. And so according to IUCN, 
about a third of these reef building coral species are threatened or endangered with extinction. So also not a great number there. And I mentioned this the other week too, here in Florida, we've been hearing a lot about this this summer because we've had hotter than expected or hotter than typical uh, temperatures earlier than we would typically be seeing those high temperatures. And that has caused major bleaching events with Florida's coral reef system. So here locally, what I can say is this has not been a good year for for Florida's coral reefs. So what are the reasons for that? What are some of the major threats facing coral reefs? And we're going to talk about this in a few different ways. I'm obviously going to sort of be building up to the biggest one, but I did want to start with some natural threats. I didn't want to jump in and just be like, here's all the things we're doing wrong, everybody, because coral is an animal, right? Coral reefs are living things. There's lots of natural threats and checks and balances in the natural world, right? Coral lives and coral dies and and, and things happen. So what are some of the natural threats? Sort of side caveat, I do think that even though we're calling these natural threats, human activities can have an impact on these as well. But natural threats, storm waves. So Kristen, we just talked about that, right? The the coral reefs being a buffer for this wave energy. Coral reefs are strong structures, but they're not indestructible. So <laughs> that, that wave energy that they're protecting us from can damage or, or break reefs. Also, we talked about reef building coral, a lot of it being shallow water species because they need the sunlight, right? So sometimes tides even, if a a tide is too low for too long, being out of the water, um, that can cause some damage to coral reefs. So there is just some of that natural sort of day-to-day threat that can impact coral. And then this is an interesting one. Kristen, are you familiar with crown of thorns, starfish, or sea stars as you prefer? I would not say familiar. I would say I've heard of them. Okay. Well, there you go. That's it. Step one. (laughs) So lots of things prey upon corals. Let's start with that. So some of those reef fish that I was just mentioning earlier, they eat coral polyps. Uh, Crown of thorns, sea stars do eat coral. And this is a native species to like the Indo-Pacific and is found on the Great Barrier Reef and all of that. So it's not an invasive species or anything like that. However, like in any ecosystem, if a predator-prey balance gets thrown out of whack, it can be damaging. So what we're seeing sometimes is just huge booms in population of this crown of thorns sea star and that can overwhelm and be really destructive actually to reefs so these are really big sea stars they can get over 20 inches and have over 20 arms uh, and they have these big old spines they're actually really really cool looking sea stars so just another thing to look I, up if you're I think they're kind of scary looking so look yeah. up your snailfish but also look up this sea star <laughs> It is wild looking. And um, yeah, I mean, if I were coral, I'd be scared. I'm scared and I'm not a coral. <laughs> it's very like intense looking. Yeah. like Lots and lots of arms, lots of lots of spines. 
no yeah. touchy. And mm -hmm. I, I was reading one article. Shoot, I don't think I linked to it, but I that talked about how in previous years, in an effort to control this species, people would go and like cut them in half, Ugh. which doesn't work because they can regenerate themselves. Oh gosh, this <laughs> sounds like a horror movie waiting to happen. Uh, no, controlling them is a conservation effort that we do take with coral reefs, but that's that's not how we. It's not the, the appropriate way to should, do it. Should not do so, that. Nope. No, would not recommend. Don't don't do that. Anyway, that is just another example of a natural threat. And then, of course, there is disease. This is another big thing that we've been hearing down here in Florida a lot. We've been hearing about stony coral tissue loss disease which is a probably bacterial uh, disease that was first noted back in 2014 and has now been known to impact reefs in around 22 countries and territories in the Caribbean. There is like an antibiotic paste that is being used to, to slow the spread. But as I was reading about different diseases, it seems like they're just, it's another big area of research, honestly. So we don't actually know a whole lot about what causes this stony coral tissue loss disease and other diseases that I was reading about is the same thing. Like we don't actually necessarily know a lot about what the agent is uh, or exactly how it spreads. So I was reading about a black band disease, which is caused by bacteria, but at least one source I was reading, the Florida Museum actually, was saying that it's it's a bacterial agent, but we see this disease when corals are stressed by other environmental factors. So again, we're talking about a naturally occurring thing that can be exacerbated by, by human activities, uh, which we'll talk more about what those are shortly. And then there's also white band disease, which we don't know what causes that one, but it might be related to overgrowth of, of algae. So let's move on now to those man-made threats. Kristen, just off the top of your head, is there anything that pops to mind that you're aware of or have heard of as being a threat to corals? Pollution, for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, we here in Indiana, I mean, we don't kind of connect it as easily as maybe you guys do in Florida, but we still advocate when we are talking with folks on, you know, different fertilizers and things that we're all connected and that our waterways do connect to the Gulf of Mexico. So our um, impact here does impact, you know, the reefs and things um, down closer to you guys. So we do advocate for it here. It's a harder sell. Yeah. Wise because we're farther away. But yes, in, in general, when I think of like man-made threats to the ocean, I think of like direct pollution and not necessarily just, we've talked about plastics a lot on a couple different episodes. That is one of them, but I think of more on the chemical side of things since all the waterways, you know, are connected back to the ocean. Um, that's where my brain goes. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that one. So I will say I, so many great places. There's, I have so many, so many links that will be in the show notes for 
this episode. There's just so much out there on coral. NOAA, again, was a big source for this one. Uh, the United Nations Environmental Program actually had a lot of stuff. And the EPA, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, actually had a great list talking about the different aspects of pollution that could impact the reefs. And yeah, that one of them that they called out was... Well, they have it sort of classified under nutrients, but we've talked about this before, I think, with fertilizers, that particularly it's the nitrogen and phosphorus, right, that is in those fertilizers and, yeah, runoff from both agricultural use and residential use of these fertilizers getting into our our waterways and Basically, the reason that these are a threat for our reefs is that those nutrients lead to an overgrowth of algae, which we were just mentioning as potentially tying into some of the diseases that we see with coral. But in general, what algae will do, too, that's harmful for reefs is if there is overgrowth, again, algae on coral reefs is normal, but if there is overgrowth of algae, this blocks the sunlight from getting through that the symbiotic algae with coral, the zooxanthellae, need that sunlight for photosynthesis. And so this other, this overgrowth of algae over the reefs blocks the sunlight from getting through to the zooxanthellae. And it also consumes the oxygen that corals need. And this does, as you were saying, Kristen, hold true even if you're not living right by a reef. All drains lead to the ocean, as they say in Finding Nemo. All waterways lead to the ocean as well. So these things getting into our water supply anywhere can build up and make it down into our oceans and cause damage. So we all have to be careful. We advocate. um, I mean, there are issues on a local level as well. Um, And we have some impaired water bodies in Indiana that Mm -hmm. we're actively working on projects to help kind of reverse the effects of different, you know, fertilizers and herbicides, fungicides, just overuse of chemicals in general. Um, So we advocate the correct usage of those chemicals. Um, And we had mentioned in, in episodes past, particularly in the soil and water conservation district episode, that um, we just advocate for using chemicals, you know, only when you need them sparingly and using them at the right rate, the right time, the right location, that kind of thing. So we advocate that on a local level um, because we do see impacts to local streams and things. Um, There's certain streams like you can't fish out of or even recreate on here in Indiana. So impact here, but then it also, it does lead to the ocean. So those chemicals and things can, can cause big issues, uh, just like you were chatting about. So yeah, yeah there, there's an impact everywhere. And and lots of other things as well. Uh, so some other things that were categorized under pollution as threats for coral reefs are, are sedimentation. So things like from coastal development, uh, stormwater runoff, um, these things can also sort of like be just blocking or interfering to the growth uh, growth of wreaths pathogens also can come from poorly treated uh, sewage water stormwater runoff again livestock all of those things not as common but it can happen where certain types of pathogens can impact coral they have a toxic substances category as well according to the EPA so things like metals They've included pesticides here, 
sunscreens is another one. Are you familiar at all with sunscreens and coral reefs, Kristen? I am a little bit, um, not necessarily on the chemical level, but it's kind of a trendy thing now to slap on the sunscreen that it says coral safe or reef safe sunscreen. And I, I know that has to do with the different, you know, chemical compounds that are that are yeah. in the sunscreen. This is an interesting one to read a little bit about, too. Basically, what I've gathered from reading about it is that more research needs to be done on it. But uh, there are a number of chemicals that are really popular in sunscreen sunscreens that have been shown to be damaging to coral at certain levels. These studies have been done in the lab, so I think it's still TBD on how much we're seeing this impact corals in the wild. But given that we know that these chemicals have the potential to cause harm, I think, you know, that that's starting to become a thing where where folks are saying, hey, like, let's look out and be careful about this. I'm pretty sure Hawaii has banned certain sunscreen chemicals um, from being used locally. So look into that before you go. I also found that reef safe doesn't necessarily mean anything that doesn't have, there's not a lot of regulation around putting that on your label. So don't trust it blindly. Uh, although, you know, you can certainly start there and and then just check the ingredients to see if it really is what, what you're looking for. My understanding is what we're supposed to be looking for right now is to look for mineral-based sunscreens like titanium dioxide or zinc oxide, but you want to try to avoid nano chemicals. So if you're seeing nano titanium dioxide or nano zinc oxide, you want to try to avoid that too, just because they're smaller and there's other potential that that can impact the impact that they might have on coral, if that makes sense. So just an FYI for you, this isn't like a must do immediately thing for me. Like, do what you need to do to protect yourself from the sun. But I think it is a a good thing to look out for. See if you can find some of those mineral-based sunscreens. And I do feel like I'm seeing and hearing about mineral-based sunscreens more and more these days. And of course, just physical trash, microplastics, things like that can also be damaging to coral reefs. Lost fishing gear, Things like that can get left on reefs and actually cause physical damage. Physically touching coral can be damaging to it as well. So irresponsible tourism, people standing on reefs or collecting coral can cause physical damage to the reefs too. And then unsustainable fishing practices, which includes both overfishing, which can throw off that food web like we were talking about with our crown of thorns, sea stars, and the predator-prey balance can also lead to algal overgrowth. But also unsustainable fishing practices, so things like trawling or blast fishing, which if you're not familiar with blast fishing, it is what it sounds like. It's blowing things up to Mm. kill the fish and catch them. That can obviously physically damage coral reefs. So lots of different types of man-made threats to coral reefs there. All of those threats could also be termed local threats, meaning blast fishing could be done in one part of the world. So it's something that's currently impacting X coral reef system, but over here, it's not really affecting this Y coral reef system over here. So those, does that make sense? They're just more localized. They can have more localized impacts. That's not to say that it couldn't be happening 
everywhere, right? Like I'm sure pollution and runoff and all of those things are impacting lots of different reefs in lots of different places, but they are, uh, they could be happening in one place and impacting one reef or section of reef and not happening anywhere, right? Their, their impacts are more focused on a specific area. But all of that to say there is a bigger global threat that is facing our coral reefs, which is warming ocean temperatures. So I've alluded to it already, talking about the situation that we're facing here this summer in South Florida, in the, the coral reef system there. But warming ocean temperatures and increased acidification of the ocean, which which go hand in hand, this is a global threat to coral reefs. This is something that is is happening all over. And that report that I referenced in the beginning, that was a a big source for a lot of this, the Global Coral Reef Monitoring Network report that came out in 2020. According to that report, this is a quote directly from it, large-scale coral bleaching events caused by elevated sea surface temperatures are the greatest disturbance to the world's coral reefs. So this is what coral reef Experts that have studied this are calling the biggest threats to coral reef everywhere is our rising ocean temperatures caused by our rising atmospheric temperatures. So what's happening with this, this ties into what we talked about at the end of our last episode when we talked about coral bleaching and the expelling of the zooxanthellae from coral reefs. So basically what's happening is as Earth's temperature is rising, of course, our water temperatures are going to rise too, right? Imagine, you know, putting a bowl of water outside in the sun. Eventually it's going to warm up, right? And we're talking about these coral in these shallower waters. So as those sea surface temperatures rise, that's going to impact our coral. Corals get too warm. That's an environmental stress on them. We talked about when those corals get stressed, that zooxanthellae starts actually producing compounds that are going to be harmful to the coral. And the coral's like, whoop, nope, let's get rid of you. And they expel the zooxanthellae. They lose the color associated with that algae. They turn white. This is what's called coral bleaching because now you're seeing that calcium carbonate sort of skeleton underneath. Bleached coral doesn't equal dead coral right away, but if that stressor isn't removed and that coral remains bleached for long enough, it cannot survive long-term without zooxanthellae. And then, of course, also just being bleached leads them to be more susceptible to some of those diseases and other things that we talked about. So that's it, really. It's getting too hot. It's getting too hot for these coral and... If they aren't resilient enough to keep up, then they can't survive uh, these long-term mass bleaching effects. And then ocean acidification goes right along with that, um, which is is tied into the carbon dioxide in the environment. So oceans are carbon sink. Oceans take up carbon dioxide for us. So the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is about in equilibrium with what is in water. So when our atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide increase, so does the ocean carbon dioxide. Then that carbon dioxide in the water has reactions to form carbonic acid, which causes an increase in 
acidity. And I found that since the Industrial Revolution, ocean acidity has increased by about 30%, a rate that is more than 10 times what has previously occurred for millions of years. And that's only expected to continue if, if we keep doing things at the rate that we are doing them. So increase in ocean acidity can have uh, a number of different effects. This is more chemistry than I understand, but apparently the lower pH would reduce the availability of dissolved salts and ions needed by corals to form that calcium carbonate structure that we talked about, reef building corals forming, so it can impact coral growth. And apparently if it becomes too acidic, coral skeletons could actually dissolve, which sounds really unpleasant as well. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of chemistry you just threw Ugh, at us. I do oh, not enjoy chemistry, so... <laughs> Having some bad flashbacks right? to my terrible time in organic chemistry. Yeah, let's, so, we don't, yeah, let's move I don't, on. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. But th- that's just the quick sort of understanding how climate change is impacting coral reefs in a couple of different ways. So those greenhouse gases obviously trapping heat in our environment, making our waters warm too. And that greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide, more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere means more carbon dioxide in our waters, which just makes bad things happen to our our corals is, is the simple way to say it. So that does not paint a pretty picture. And quite honestly, Kristen, when I was reading about all of this over the past few days, I got like a little, I'm not usually like this, but I got a little bit discouraged. I like, I really did. I was like, I trying to come up with the the challenge for this week and everything. I was just like, uh, we really need to do something. (laughs) We really do. So I think it is important at this point to say that there absolutely is reason for hope. This report that I keep referring to, I actually found through the United Nations Environmental Program. Uh, they linked to it and we're talking about it and, and have a website based on the information in it. But they also say in 2019, despite increasingly frequent bleaching events, the amount of coral on world's reefs increased by 2%. So we talked about that 14% decrease from 2009 to 2018. In 2019, we saw a little increase. Now, I was reading one thing that said that that might be like an anomaly or just something to do with the the more robust information or or something like that. So, you know, you don't want to use it and just be like, oh, like everything's okay after all. But I, I think it is a sign that we still have a lot to learn. We are doing things to help protect reefs. We are trying to do things to cut our emissions and slow climate change and all of that. But we're also trying to learn more about how resilient reefs might be able to be uh, against climate change. So that's a thing that we're we're learning about too. So um, scientists are like looking for pockets of reef habitats that seem to be more resilient and studying those. So uh, in places like Kenya, Tanzania, Australia, Indonesia, Malaysia, and India, they're looking at some pockets of reefs that seem to be pretty resilient. And so that's one area of study that we're looking at going forward. So there's a lot to learn still, but we do also know that despite that, even if, you know, we have some coral that's going to be resilient, we know that we have to work to curb these threats too. Yes, we'll take the tiny win. The work is not at all done, but 
it's impossible to be a pessimistic conservationist, even though <laughs> it is sometimes so depressing. And we talk about coral, and this is one of those instances that it's just seems so awful. But I, I like hearing little stories like that because it, it keeps me going and provides a little bit of, of hope there. So the yeah. work is not done and probably will never be done, but um, it's a nice little little boost of confidence. Yeah, and I think it it is... You, like you say, the work will never be done, but there is so much work being done. And so, you know, we can talk about that a little bit, too. Like, first of all, all of those local threats that we talked about, dang, we, sh- we should have maybe talked about the solutions as we talked about those threats. But there's lots of work being done for those, too. Like, we've talked about on this podcast multiple times about sustainable seafood and the Seafood Watch program through the Monterey Bay Aquarium and all of that. So that's you know, immensely beneficial in itself, us looking for purchasing sustainable seafood, there being more regulations around fisheries and and sustainable fishing practices, the establishment of marine protected areas, which, you know, there can be different levels, but these are are basically areas where there is control, like there you can say what you're allowed to do in these marine protected areas and not allowed to do. Uh, so that can be a huge source of protection for reefs and other ocean life as well. So there's there's work being done to address those local threats. There is also the work of coral reef restoration. Have you heard about coral nurseries, Kristen? Not really. No. And it's a fascinating concept. It makes sense, but I yeah. am not familiar. So basically, it's a thing we do with animals. In, you know, zoos will do this sometimes too. It's like you, maybe I've mentioned hellbenders before. You can like harvest eggs and hatch them out under a protected setting. And then once they're big enough, release them back out into the wild. So the the idea is that you are getting more of them to a big enough size that they're going to be safe whereas if you just left them in the wilds they're going to be eaten by other animals or whatever the case may be so you're trying to boost the population by providing some protected care uh, and some really focused care for these animals and that's really what we're doing with the coral here so you're taking fragments of coral and they can collect and harvest in different ways i think sometimes they do harvest coral larvae and we'll grow it there too but a lot of times they'll just collect coral fragments and think of like plant cuttings how you can do that with some plants you can do that with the coral as well so they'll just harvest these little fragments and then grow them with directed care so there's two types of coral nurseries you can have coral nurseries that are just in the water they're separate from the reef so they're in a separate area but they are in the ocean in the environments called in situ nurseries and this i think is the majority of them you just have these sites in the water away from the the natural reefs and you can have little platforms to grow the coral on some of them use these little like tree frame like structures to hang the coral from and they will just be cared for and looked after until they are reach an appropriate size to be sort of planted, if you will, back uh, onto the reef. For me, thinking about this, I still don't quite understand. Sometimes I'm like, well, gosh, like, wouldn't you still have some of those same issues facing these nurseries? And yes, you would. That's one of the one of the cons. 
of then is that they're more susceptible to some of those environmental conditions that that are threatening our our reefs. But the advantage, the reason that you would want to do this, have a a coral nursery like this, is that it's lower cost. So there's less of an overhead cost for this, less technology needed in the uh, collection and care for these corals. So it's a little bit easier to maintain them but your trade-off is that you do have some, still have some of those environmental risks, even though they are in a separate location and they have people dedicated caring for them, right? And then there are also ex situ nurseries. So out of the water, these are land-based buildings where you can take these your little coral babies to grow them uh, in these off-site areas and then uh, take them back to the water when they're big enough. So obviously this is a much more controlled environment here. They're sheltered from any of those environmental structures, those major bleaching events, any pathogens, things like that. Um, So it's a, a much sort of safer controlled environment but obviously you can imagine the logistics of that and the travel back and forth and all of the you know the environment and the water chemistry <laughs> side of things that I don't understand yeah I can't imagine like all the water chemistry and all the pumps needed yeah to make sure the water is oxygenated and I it sounds like an intense process. I would yeah. love to see one of these facilities in person. So too. we and talked about little greener on the road. We're <laughs> going to have to take some field trips. Yeah, there is one. There is a, a nursery uh, here in, in central Florida that they know of. I don't I don't know exactly where, but I'm guessing they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to have to make some friends. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so disadvantages of this are, are that they the expense and you know all of the equipment and all of that. But but basically, those small fragments are 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 taken, cared for in the nursery setting until they get big enough, and then they are returned to the reefs. So this is a a super cool thing, very essential. Very like you were saying, Kristen, ongoing. This is a continuous process. This isn't like a you know, one and done, we're going to recover this, this reef from this bleaching event, and then we're done. Um, This is like analogous to bailing out, you know, an overflowing bathtub while the water is still running, right? So we have to turn off the tap, uh, as it were, and eliminate some of those pressures that these coral reefs are facing to have any sort of success in the long run. I mean, because the other thing is too, we like we're doing this restoration work but if the climate changes to a point where like that's that's one thing that scientists are concerned about is that you know if climate change keeps continuing at this rate the locations where reefs currently are are not going to be hospitable to reefs anymore in the future so we've got to do something about that we can't just you know rely solely on this restoration process but it is is a really cool thing for sure that people are doing Oh, I'm exhausted. And I feel like even that was just like a quick run through of coral. You could have a podcast just on coral. You really could. A whole Oh yeah. Like a a, just a dedicated, yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. long term. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I want to go reiterate what I said in the last episode too about how I feel like coral just gets so easily overlooked because it doesn't look like what we think of as an animal, right? There's no 
we we just we we can't relate to it like we might be able to look at a tiger or a panda bear <laughs> or whatever you know the case may be and uh, feel that sort of same empathy but it's such a cool thing so i hope that this couple of episodes helped pique people's interest a little bit and understand how important they are uh, and understand a little more about uh, the work that's being done to protect them anything else before we head to our challenge of the week Kristen? i just wanted to thank you uh for all of this amazing information and i, I know it's just a start but it's a lot more than i knew before so I appreciate uh, you diving into this topic and I'm thankful for to whoever uh, had suggested it because someone requested this episode, right? Yep. This was a requested episode. Yeah. I I meant to mention that in the beginning too. Thanks for bringing it up. We have a couple more requests that have come in too that we will be getting to at some point. Like I said, we we won't always get to them immediately, but we will absolutely get to them so keep that in mind folks if you're listening and have a request and uh stick around so we've talked about some of the the work that is being done to conserve coral when we come back we will talk about what we can do to help protect coral with our challenge of the week All right. Thanks for joining us for this episode on coral conservation. I guess, Kristen, my wrap up for this would just be that I hope people understand that healthy coral is important for everybody. And this was put out by in, in by some scientists in some of the articles that I was reading, too, that when we talk about the loss of coral reefs, when we talk about these bleaching events, the, our warming temperatures, all of that, and we talk about the impact that it could have on coral reefs, we are not just talking about the loss of coral, the animal. We are talking about the loss of an entire ecosystem. Absolutely. And that, I think, is kind of what freaked me out a little bit. Because they were saying, too, in some of these articles, that, yeah, we don't know. Like, there still are a lot of questions about what the future might look like when it comes to reefs both like we were talking about we're still learning about the resiliency of corals and how they might be able to adapt but also fully what would the impact be without them we know it wouldn't be good right because we know of all of those benefits that coral reefs have that we talked about in the beginning but we've not experienced the loss of an entire ecosystem like that before so yeah, I don't want to know. <laughs> I, I don't right. Wanna... <laughs> it's kind of a scary thought. And we're obviously not trying to scare any of you listeners or anything, um, but just to kind of de- demonstrate the importance right. of this animal that we've been talking about. And even f- for someone like myself, who's in the Midwest, y- you know, you feel so distant from mm-hmm. this issue, but there are things that you can do to help. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of those in our challenges, I imagine. Yeah. So, and this was really hard for me to, because I feel like throughout the course of A Little Greener, we really have tried to 
at least in the beginning, I felt like we really wanted to pick a challenge. And certainly sometimes we would have a couple. We would have maybe our basic and our, our um, oh my gosh, what did we call it? I, it's Oh, beast mode. Our beast mode. Yeah. Thank you. Our beast mode challenge um, and all that. But I feel like we tried to have them like really focused. And here's one specific thing that you could do just to make it easier um, for people every week. But I feel like, A, as time has gone on, we've already talked about a lot of things so I feel like we do start to maybe repeat some challenges uh, but also be like this is just such a vast thing like we had so many individual threats that we talked about there that I was like I just want to list off like 10 different things that you could do to to protect corals but you can find those lists. So just know that if this is something that is of particular interest to you, well, I'll put some links to some things that have lists of, of different things that individuals can do to help protect corals. Uh, but I did come up with a couple of things that I wanted to focus on. And the first is actually a, a citizen science or community science project that I heard about and, and have tried out a little bit. And it's called the Great Reef Census. And this is really focused on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. But I thought it's it's just a really cool way for anyone to get involved, regardless of whether or not you live near a coral. Because uh, it's something you can anyone can do from your own home. And it is one of those sort of photo identification things. So you can go to greatreefcensus.org. You can learn a little bit more about their project and you can basically just analyze photos and it'll just ask you to identify different types of coral. And I mean that generally, like it'll give you, it'll tell you the list of like branching corals or plate corals. So you're categorizing it in that type of way. It'll ask you like for the amount of coral cover and it'll kind of walk you through that process and they can use that information for coral conservation efforts that they're working on. So it's a really cool project because not only do they have volunteers identifying photos like this, but if you are listening from Australia in the area of the Great Barrier Reef, they also use volunteers to go out and collect these images. So it's a really, really big volunteer effort uh, that can be used in real conservation action so they can uh, use this information to kind of identify reefs that are in need for conservation efforts they can identify reefs that are doing well um, versus reefs that might need restoration work they can also use it to help direct that crown of thorns sea star control that i talked about earlier so they can use the data that they're generating from their images to help direct teams that are are working on controlling that population as well. So it's just kind of a cool project, something fun that you can do to participate no matter where you live. I will say it is a little bit hard for me in some of those images. It, sometimes I'm like, I don't even, I can't quite tell if that's coral or if that's something else. Is that live coral? Is it not live coral? It's hard to tell. Um, so just don't be too intimidated by that. Do the best you can and know that multiple people are looking at, at each image and just try to have some fun with it. That challenge is right up my alley. I just yeah. wrote it down. So I'm going to try really hard because I love any kind of identifying photos. We talked previously about how I used to work on camera trap programs and yeah. identifying photos of local wildlife. 
I've done some camera trap analysis when I did work in Africa. Like I, I love this. So I wrote it down and I am determined to do this challenge. Yes. Let me know uh, how it goes when, when you try it. I'll have to get on and do a few more myself too. And then my second challenge is maybe not as specific as I would normally like it to be, but it is just the one that I felt like I had to say, given what we talked about. Again, there are lots of things that we can all do individually to help, especially with what we call those those quote-unquote local threats. But I really feel like we need to work on this global threat altogether and you know, focus our efforts on trying to mitigate the impacts of climate change and help slow the rise of these ocean temperatures. If that is what we're calling the greatest threat to coral reefs right now, then that's what I feel like we need to work on. And there are obviously lots of ways that we can do this. And I I think this was, was my frustration. And I'm typically the one that's like, yes, like our personal, like I really do believe that our personal efforts do make a difference. And I do believe that. But I think in this setting, I just started to get really frustrated that like any potential challenge that I could set out is just too small a drop in the bucket, if you will. (laughs) So just know that I really do believe that our, our personal efforts can make a difference. So my challenge is just to focus on what are some steps that you can take to reduce your carbon footprint as a whole. So that might be for you, maybe that is cutting back on the meat that you're eating like I did last week, you know, so that that's one example. Maybe it is taking the step to a hybrid or an electric car if you have the means to do so. Whatever that looks like for you, just really take some time to sit and think about the year ahead. Like what is the next big thing that I could do to help make a difference in this area. I think for me, I did already think about it for myself. I think it's going to be investing in my local clean energy program. Um, I don't feel like I'm in a position to like get solar panels or anything like that on my roof, but I know that there are a couple of options through my power company to support clean energy. And it's a little bit scary because I don't have a whole lot of extra money floating around, but I do feel like I kind of need to put my money where my mouth is on this and and maybe that'll be my next big step so it's vague but it's like I said it's just what I felt like needed to happen with this episode so think about where you're at in your life and what your next step might be awesome thank you Sarah Thank you so much, Kristen. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes, you can find us on Facebook, A Little Greener Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. You can check out episodes on YouTube at A Little Greener Podcast and uh, use the captioning there if that's helpful for you. And you can reach out to us anytime at A Little Greener Podcast at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you again, Sarah. This was amazing. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, guys.